Welcome to The Bipod, a podcast about all things bisexual. We cover topics like bisexual representation, our own experiences, and queer culture. I'm Chelsea, and my pronouns are they and them. I'm Christina, and my pronouns are she and her. We define bisexuality as experiencing attraction to people who share your gender identity and to those who don't. We welcome anyone who has any kind of relationship with or curiosity about queerness. For more info about the show, you can visit thebipod.com or find us on Instagram at thebipod. We don't know everything. At all. This podcast is one piece of the long history of bisexual and queer discourse. We're here to be part of the conversation. Let's get into it. Christina, what have you been thinking about lately? I continue to think about uh, the bullshit that we internalize. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's called a theme, everybody. (laughs) Um, Yep, yep. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salas. Oh, that's been on my reading list for a while. Um, Yeah, I... I'm not sure about the pronunciation of his last name. Um, I tried looking it up and the internet wasn't helpful to me. Um, But uh, I would definitely recommend it to... It's aimed mainly at fiction, but I would recommend it to anybody that engages in writing workshops. Um, And honestly, it probably could be widely applicable to like anyone with a creative practice. Um... The book really interrogates what we mean by craft, I suppose, Mm -hmm. and also what we're hoping to accomplish in a workshop space. And I'd say it's definitely grounded in kind of the like MFA world, but like those practices, I think, like translate out into workshops more generally. And basically, like anything, um, the way that we talk about writing and the way that we conduct workshops is very much steeped in the American project. Uh, mm. <laughs> so everything from um, like capitalist language that we use of like, oh, this didn't pay off or you didn't oh. earn this. Um, things that are like regularly said in workshop spaces or about pieces of writing Mm. that are just like entrenched in stuff that is in theory not about writing. Um, so there's like stuff like that, which, um, is like sort of a smaller example, but then um like the way that we conceive of narrative in the west is different than the way that narrative is produced in other parts of the world mm-hmm. which often means that when we are talking about other writing traditions in a US context um we can be very People can be very dismissive of it. Like, Mm. this didn't have any conflict or this didn't have any that. 
And it's like, well, the fact that you think that a story needs that is a craft choice to begin with. Right. And also it might have those things. They might just not look like what you're used Mm. to. Like the obsession with the hero's journey is very much a like Western obsession that is tied up in a lot of our own ideas about like agency and um, who wields power um, and the glory of the individual. Yeah, exactly. And so all of this can can mean that um, it limits it can limit everyone, but particularly then when you introduce people of color into a context that is like deeply steeped in like a white supremacy culture it uh the workshop doesn't what am i saying like to ask to ask someone who's maybe like creating work from a different tradition Mm -hmm. to then be like assessed based on the standards of a tradition that doesn't that is not theirs or that they're not even maybe not even interested in engaging in um can just like really crush a writer Mm -hmm. and like I don't know it's just it's I'm having like a lot of thoughts about it and like the way that the world that we live in and the um assumptions that we have or that are um pushed onto us can like infiltrate things that we don't realize um and also that sometimes people come very intentionally into those spaces with an agenda that can be invisible so um a thing that i didn't know is the um founder of the Iowa Writers Workshop which is like probably the most famous yeah like prestigious yeah MFA program um was uh invested in spreading uh how is it phrased like basically american ideals and like uh staving off communism oh <laughs> <laughs> and, famously the project of creative writing yeah and so like that is a like the way that that workshop was designed was to like further those ends mm. and now that is like that's the, the model that we all have yeah wow so that is uh problematic to say the least mm-hmm. um but i also think speaks to like the power of creative spaces mm-hmm. and creative work and so in addition to um and this kind of the the book gets at this but i've been thinking about like in addition to interrogating the uh various problematic practices that have that are built into workshop pr- traditions um how can we also use that as a space to um to get closer to the kind of world that we want to live in. Like how can that generative space be a space that models the 
practices um, and the values that we want more broadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, workshop as the site of resistance and revolution. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Hmm, I'll have to read that book. It has been on my thrift books uh, wish list for a long time. I just keep reading other nonfiction <laughs> books instead. Yeah, you love nonfiction. You should, you know. That's why it's on the list. Read this one. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm reading an ebook of it, but I'm definitely going to need to get a like physical copy. To yeah, that feels like a highlight as kind like of book. reference. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. What about you? What have you been thinking about? Um, I've been thinking about work. Um, and what I mean by that is I, uh, did a pretty, I don't think, know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I did a pretty, uh, significant like career shift, um, at the beginning of 2022, um, for the past few years, I've been primarily teaching, um, and doing curriculum design and stuff like that. And now I'm back uh, working in publishing, but specifically in academic publishing, um, and I really like it. I'm really happy. It's been a few months and now I'm feeling like very settled. Um, and I feel like I've like adjusted to the whirlwind of a new life. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, oh, what is this like? Um, and I really like it. At the end of the day, I don't feel like I'm at the end of my rope, which is how I felt most days, um, teaching children on Zoom. No offense to children, but it's a lot. Um, and it's not for me to do as a full-time job. Um, and so I feel really good about the, the shift. My coworkers are awesome. I like the work. It feels like it aligns with my values. It's a pretty small, like, independent press. Um, and it's really fun, and I enjoy it. Um, and I also, like, um, yeah, I'm not at the end of my rope every day. So I'm writing more. Um, I'm sleeping better. I'm, like, moving my body every day in some way. Um, and it's very good. Um, but I'm also thinking about um, there's, like, there's a lot of people leaving teaching right now. Um, and I don't like really consider myself like a part of like the leaving the teachers leaving the industry movement only because like I, um, was never like a regular classroom teacher. I was doing primarily like private lessons and small groups and after school programs and whatever. Um, and I don't have a credential. Um, and so it's a little bit different, I guess. And it was just something that like made sense for me in the pandemic. Um, and I've also been teaching in some capacity for most of my adult life. Um, so I just, it just was sort of happening. <laughs> um, and like I said, I feel really good about this change. I'm still teaching a couple classes a week at night, um, but I get to just only take the creative writing classes because it's not my primary form of income. Um, so that's been fun. But um, especially with everything that's happening um, I don't know, the culture war right now is really happening in the classroom about like what teachers can say, what teachers can expose students to, um, what teachers are allowed to do to make students feel safe in the classroom. Um, and there is a part of me that feels um, like it was irresponsible to leave teaching, um, even though like logically I'm like, no, it wasn't. I can contribute to the world much better now because I'm like, able to like have a conversation at the end of the day um and like I said like I personally am like currently very happy with the way that things are um in my own professional life but um there is a weird like 
I don't know if guilt is the right word. And I also don't feel like, oh, no, now that I'm not teaching, the kids aren't okay. <laughs> um, so it's not that. Um, but I'm just kind of like publishing is also noble, but there's something about teaching that made me um, feel like I was sort of like directly contributing to um, creating safe spaces for kids of all kinds, um, for students of all kinds. I taught adults as well. Um and now that I'm not doing that, I'm just like having feelings about it. Yeah. So I've been thinking about that and thinking about um ways that I can sort of address that and make sure that like my I'm showing up within my values in other ways in my life so I don't feel like I'm like, huh, forget other people. Now it's <laughs> just me. <laughs> um, which is not happening, I don't no. think. Um but also uh, taking the pressure off myself to um, save the the world because I wasn't doing that before. I'm one person. Um, yeah, I've just been um, processing now that I like know what I'm doing and I feel comfortable in my current role. Um, processing what it means to also like teaching is a profession that like has felt very tied to my identity for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like other jobs that I've had, maybe like that's not as true. Um, so I'm also kind of like letting that go a little bit. I really need you to read Work Won't Love You Back. I will read Work Won't Love You Back. It's a nonfiction book. So exactly. Got, I'm just only going to give you nonfiction recs. <laughs> and I'll really, I don't have that many of them, so they're going to be good. <laughs> Uh, the funny thing is, is I'm actually reading a fiction book right now. It's so good. It's called Love and Color. But don't tell the podcast listeners that I'm listening to a fiction story. <laughs> short You're going to lose all your credibility. <laughs> I can't take you seriously anymore. Yeah, it's by uh, Bolu Babalola. It's so good. But Well, speaking of fiction, mm. <laughs> <laughs> today we are talking about... Spy buys. Spy buys. Spy <laughs> spies. <laughs> um, because I kind of roped you in uh, to my love for spies, mm-hmm. a recently discovered love. Um, particularly, we're going to talk about the movie Atomic Blonde, mm-hmm. um, which will get, I'll give a little bit of an explanation of the setup of the movie. Um, you need not worry about spoilers if you haven't seen the movie um, because this is a movie that is uh, light on plot, heavy on vibes and aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, big vibes. So there's pretty much only like three pieces of plot that could possibly be spoiled that would like be meaningful to the story. So we've just decided we won't, you know, talk about those yeah, three things. no need. Um, everything else is uh, more general. And so if you haven't seen the film, I we won't ruin it for you Mm -hmm. um so the setup is that um uh the movie takes place in Berlin just a few days before the fall of the wall um so (laughs) there's a lot going on in Berlin um (laughs) and uh in addition to the the political climate uh there is a list of uh of covert operatives that um is out in the world somehow i don't know if we actually find out where it came from uh maybe the russians had it did the russians have it i don't know i don't know but that would 
That would be plot, and this movie was like, no, yeah. thank you. We don't need um, that. <laughs> there's a list, basically, that has um, the names and, like, identifying details about a bunch of spies. Um, and so it would be everybody wants to get th- their hands on this list um, because you want to protect your own operatives and also um, you want to find out everybody else's business, mm-hmm. basically is the setup so um Charlize Theron's character uh whose name is Lorraine but we'll probably just call her Charlize yeah <laughs> um is um the Brits send her to Berlin to try and retrieve this list and her contact in Berlin uh, is a guy named Percival who's played by James McAvoy and he's been in Berlin for years. Um, and he loves Berlin. He loves Berlin. He has, quote unquote, gone native. Um, obviously, that is a problematic uh, phrasing. But basically, he has more allegiance to Berlin than he does to the British at this point, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they know that. But he's the only he's their guy on the ground, I guess. Um, it seems like. There's not, there's not a lot of spies to go around in this movie is what yeah, it sort of I'm seemed like. Yeah, I'm like, really? It's Berlin in 1989 <laughs> and y'all have the one spy there? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe he's just like the most closely associated to the list situation. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, And then we also come in contact with a uh, an ingenue of a French spy um, named Delphine. Hot, hot, hot. Yeah. So those are... The three players that we will talk yeah, about, basically. There are many other players. Uh, it gets confusing um, if um, you're me, but <laughs> you don't have to know about them. Yeah, there's there's other, like, factions because you've got the Russians are trying to get the list and the British and the Americans are also involved. And, um, but none of them are actually, like, I mean, they're in, important in a broader sense, but for the purposes of this discussion and in terms of, like, people that you have to keep track of you don't really need to keep track yeah. of those people they just sort of like come on and yeah. and do things for the purposes of the movie <laughs> um so you've maybe already in the way that we've talked about this movie already gotten the sense um our interest in it was more the the vibes and the aesthetic than in um in the storyline and i actually I love that about the movie that it is um more focused on aesthetics basically um because so many dude movies uh have an atrocious plot <laughs> that we have to sit through when like actually the reason you're watching that movie is cuz there's going to be some fight scenes and like some things blow up it's like you mm-hmm. don't come to an action movie because like I want to be emotionally compelled. Yeah. You're not like, wow, how is Bruce Willis going to transform in the course of this film? Um, (laughs) That is just like as a maybe not all the time, but as a general rule, like there's lots of movies that like you're there for a specific thing. Yeah. And they're really just like pretending that like the plot matters. And that's kind of annoying because then oftentimes the plot's bad, which I find to be distracting. (laughs) A bad plot, much worse than no plot. (laughs) That's so true. Oh. I just realized there's one other character that we should mention, uh, which is the guy who dies at the beginning. Oh, 
do we need to mention <laughs> only because okay so there's like some guy who's like trying to get oh, the list right. yes okay I uh know. yeah and uh he gets killed um a British, very sad yeah and operative. uh there Charlize Theron has like a picture of him in her drawer the implication is that they were like romantically were involved lovers. but there's no um again because this is that would More be vibes. Plot, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the implication is that they were involved, but that's never actually like stated. But you're yeah. right. We do have to mention him. Yeah. That'll come up later. It'll come up later. Um, yeah. Anyways, back to the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of like along those, the like vibes aesthetic uh, line. I, um, Lorraine, Shirley's Theron's character, um, the film is not concerned with her interiority in any real way. Mm-hmm. There's like, um, she does get involved with Delphine, mm-hmm. the French spy. And there's like a little bit of something there about like, she seems like maybe she's actually has some real interest in Delphine just beyond like, you're hot, let's hook up. Um, but it doesn't super go into it. It's very yeah. minimal. You could blink and miss it. Um, and there is a way in which I, um, I appreciate that like her, how she feels about all of this, like doesn't really matter because that's not the point. Mm-hmm. I actually find that to be really interesting because this is an action film helmed by a woman and um very interested in gender in action movies um because you a lot of a lot of our anxieties and discomfort around gender really plays out in action movies mm-hmm. And so female action heroes often end up in this, like, they get put in this position of having to, like, uh, interrogate their femininity, except they never actually, like, there's no actual time devoted to that. Mm -hmm. It just becomes this conflict between, like, being a woman and, like, the mission um (laughs) and like movies so often action movies so often want the like female action star to um essentially behave like she's a man except also have boobs um and what i mean by that is that there's no thought given there's not a lot of actual care given to like how her experience in the world would be different. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, until we get to what I call the bus full of children moment, which is there's often a moment where she has to, the, this female action hero has to decide between the metaphorical bus full of children, <laughs> AKA like her feelings, her femininity mm-hmm. and like, the mission and Mm -hmm. it's like oh you're in hot pursuit of the bad guy um and he you know does whatever so the bus of children is in peril and you have to choose between getting the guy 
and like saving the bus full of children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, because she's a woman, she's got to save the yeah, bus. It's full like, of are children. you going to be a good mommy or a bad mommy? Exactly. <laughs> um, and she's got to save the bus full of children. Yeah. Um, and we just like. Don't do that to men like. Maybe in there actually I think there is a scene with a bus full of children in um <laughs> in one of the Spider-Man movies. Um but actually when men have there's when men have to face a bus full of children, it's usually a like feat of strength that they have to yeah, do. It's they like have to lift the bus out of a Exactly. Or it's like Superman is like flying and pushing the bus back onto a bridge. Yeah. Um it's like a display of their masculinity or like mm-hmm. their how much skill they have mm-hmm. as opposed to like um some sacrifice that they're making where they're like prioritizing i also feel like i haven't seen as many spy movies as you have or like action movies <laughs> but i also feel like uh in the examples that i can think of when the man has his bus full of children moment it's usually like he's not al- he's not often having to choose between it's like the villain or whatever is like throwing the bus at him yes and it's like a thing that happens to like show his like power dynamic and masculinity um in the conflict and then like once the bus full of children is back on the road he goes back to the conflict like it's not like a oh i have to decide i'm gonna lose this thing or not yeah um now in the emperor's new groove which is not an action (laughs) movie um but there's a very compelling moment where um Love that you're bringing that into the space. I am. Welcome, Cusco. Um, I just watched it on Christmas with my mom, so I'm thinking about it. Um, it's but her favorite movie, isn't it? It is her favorite movie. <laughs> she loves that movie. Um, but at the very end, Cusco's this like king, and he's like, I don't care about anybody. I'm the king. Um, but then at the end, this is such a, why am I telling the story? Um, he like drops, he has to choose basically between like this vial that will turn him from a llama back into a human, which yeah. if you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, or saving his friend who has like helped him get to that place. Um, and he's like looking back and forth he, and the bus full of children is just like one nice man. Yeah. Um, and then the mission is like not being a llama anymore. So maybe this metaphor doesn't quite hold up, but he chooses the friend and it's like very well in that moment. It's a moment of growth. You're like yeah. showing how he's changed. Whereas the like, bus full of children moment in action movies is usually not it's not showing like oh this character who didn't care about people oh, before now cares about them it's a like um it's essentially the moment essentially asks at least with female characters like can women really have it all mm. um like <laughs> oh yeah that makes sense that makes sense the- he does have it all in the end but <laughs> <laughs> um and Atomic Blonde completely sidesteps that because it has no interest in what her feelings are beyond, like, the action that she chooses to take. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that, you know, you could criticize about the film. And, like, if you were, like, Chelsea, make an argument for why that's bad. I definitely could. Um, but I actually, in watching, the, like, when I first watched the movie, I was, like, I love this. I, like, don't have to think about, like, oh, how does she feel about this? I just get to, like, watch her react to things. Mm-hmm. 
which in some ways, like, I imagine if you're a spy, a lot of your uh, life involves compartmentalizing things and just like acting Mm -hmm. and like um, responding to what is going on around you. And so in that way, I was like, you know, I've never been a spy, but this feels true to life to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I also feel like the, um, a lot of those scenes, uh, I'm thinking of a lot of like superhero movies with women, um, that the woman's choice to save the bus full of children, like reassures us, like, don't worry, she is still a good woman. Yeah. Um, and so by foregoing that in this movie, um, the movie is like not concerned about, um, whether or not Charlize is like succeeding in her femininity yeah. um, or whether or not she's still uh, the movie just like doesn't concern itself with whether or not Charlize is a good woman. Yeah. And there are some things that I think um, like in our birds of prey episode, we talked about some of those like moments of tacit understanding where like we know the stakes are higher because Harley Quinn is a woman. Yeah. Um, and this movie is missing that like when she, this is not a spoiler because it's a spy movie. So of course this happens. Um, but like when she is like kidnapped by a car full of men, um, that sort of like, oh, the stakes are very like different for her as opposed to what they would be if Percival was kidnapped. Um, that is missing. Um, but then like she's an extremely capable action star. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so then like the scene is still entertaining and compelling. Um, well, and I think in that particular scene that you mentioned, like her life is is on the line in a way that like would be that is uh almost genderless in that like yeah um yeah i don't know what i was gonna say about that yeah it it feels like you could switch out like the gender could be different and it wouldn't the stakes would be the same which is interesting um and is different from the conversation we had about birds of prey and like you said that could be criticized or celebrated yeah both are fine um but it is a very interesting and uh i don't know it's like a different narrative choice i feel like that i'm used to seeing yeah there are some some uh i guess subtle ways that gender comes into it that i actually i think mirror some of the things that happen in birds of prey which is in the fight scenes and like in the action scenes um she for instance like very much uses her environment Mm in a way that is um like the i've heard the director talk about like the choices that they made of like um like the moment that's coming to mind is there's a fight scene where she's like in a kitchen and she like throws the freezer door open to like mm-hmm. smack someone in the face um and you have kind of like the heightened you know uh it's a heightened fight scene, so, you know, I'm not sure how effective hitting someone in the face with a freezer door would be in real life, but maybe. Um, <laughs> haven't tried it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Haven't tried. But she is, like, the way that she fights or the way that she's sort of, like, engaged with the environment that she's in while she's fighting feels um, those moments, I think, are more specific in mm-hmm. a way that I like. Um, and like in Birds of Prey, that involved a lot of like there's a lot of breaking of knees in that movie yeah. <laughs> because that is a like easy target for like if you are a small woman um, who is fighting a very large man, like take his fucking knees out. Yeah. Um, 
and there it's maybe not as explicit as it is in mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting in birds of prey because it's explicit if you're looking at it but it's not explicit in that like no one is no one calls attention to it yeah. i guess within the film yeah um and so i'd say in atomic blonde it's maybe not as like extreme's not really the right word but it maybe does, it doesn't go as far as birds of prey but i think those moments are the moments where mm-hmm. um her femininity is sort of like centered in yeah. a different way um there <laughs> there is a moment where she's referring to a fight scene and she says something to the effect of like um if i had known that you were going to call the police i would have worn different shoes yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she still gets away she does so i'm like you did it even yeah. in your shoes <laughs> yeah and i think um what i like about those scenes is like sometimes uh in like women in action movies it's like oh no i'm unprepared all i have is this frying pan to hit you with (laughs) but instead of being like i'm unprepared so i must use household objects it was like i'm resourceful so i have guns when i run out of ammunition or whatever um then i will use my environment around me there's Um, a point where she runs out of ammunition so she uses the gun to hit someone in the face which is like very practical (laughs) (laughs) extremely practical and the the fight scenes are one of the like shining moments of this film um because they are executed incredibly well um because charlie's theron is a fucking powerhouse mm-hmm. um i wrote about this for um my newsletter previously so we will include yeah. a link in please read the show notes and what have you but just to sort of give you the tldr most action sequences in movies um they will do like one to two moves and then they cut away max maybe you'll get like four so that's why a lot of like action movies um often now they like fight scenes move really quickly but actually like very little is happening you get like cut Mm -hmm. cut 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 um and that's um partly because like the actors don't have the stamp. They're not actual fighters. So they like do their two moves and then you cut, you move the camera to a different angle, which gives then the actor gets to take a breath or whatever. And you, you know, mm-hmm. reset and go from there. Um, Charlize Theron was doing like eight to 10 moves, um, which just completely like changes the pacing um, of, of how a fight scene can be shot. And there is a, um, one particular scene that is filmed in such a way that um it's like six or like eight minutes long this fight scene and it's filmed in such a way that it looks like it's all done in one take Mm -hmm. um it was not actually a single take but they just like the cuts are done so seamlessly Mm -hmm. that it looks as though you are just following her from the moment this fight starts until it ends um and so the way that it's shot is very different and like beautiful is not really the right word because like it's a gruesome <laughs> fight scene, but like cinematically speaking, it is like yeah. beautifully done. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about it is there is no music mm-hmm. underneath it. So all you hear 
is the fighting that's happening, which involves a lot of her grunting. Mm-hmm. Um, which that I feel like is like a statement on gender because yeah. in very few contexts do you get to hear women making noises exert with their effort. body or exert <laughs> themselves. Um, and also like grunting's kind of gross and uh, not a thing that we associate with femininity. Um, but yeah, here's, girls couldn't possibly. Yeah. But here's Charlize Theron like being hot and also like fighting for her life. It like the mm-hmm. stakes feel different because yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like um, I like that the movie, I mean, like Charlize Theron is hot regardless of what's going <laughs> on. Um, but I like that the movie is like not super invested in her always being super sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, like she gets like fucked up in that scene. Yes. Um, and it's pretty gnarly, but not in like a, oh, my boobs are falling out. My bad. Um, and like a, I am like fighting many people yeah. um, with many objects. And um, she looks she looks like a zombie. Like she looks gross. Yeah. Her like eyes fucked up and she's all like bruised. Yeah. Which you just don't. You just don't really see that. In, yeah. In action movies and specifically yeah. with women particularly. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting things about this movie that I think makes it worth talking about in general. But the reason Mm -hmm. that we particularly chose this to talk about for, um, for the podcast is because, um, Shirley's Theron's character is bisexual, uh, in a way that's very not stated. Uh, Mm -hmm. it just, we get the implication that she was with this dude who was killed. Um, and also, she has an affair, I suppose, with Delphine, the French spy. Yeah, that's why I mentioned that um the the fourth character that you should know about is that man. Yes. Um only <laughs> so that you know that it's implied actually two reasons. One, it's implied that Charlie's had a relationship with him. Um and then I'll get to the other reason later. We can talk <laughs> about Charlie's first. Um, but yeah, so she was like in love with him. Presumably there's like a bathroom mirror moment where she's like looking at a picture of him, looking at herself, and then it cuts away. Um, and then she has a little tryst with Delphine in um, the hottest hotel room I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. I like love the cinematic aesthetic of like, I don't know, like neon uplighting or whatever that is, but yeah. they're like in the hotel room hooking up and the lights are all like by pride colors (laughs) and i was like where is this hotel like all the hotels i stay in are boring they have like yellow lights (laughs) what's going on this movie has a lot of bisexual lighting which is great you love to see it yeah um but there's a a sapphic sex scene Mm -hmm. which i guess we've alluded to now Mm -hmm. um which you and i actually haven't talked about it other than that i put it on the agenda uh as sapphic sex scene discuss (laughs) (laughs) do you have any thoughts i think for me like the thing about their um love affair um that i found the most exciting or interesting was that um so Delphine is like following her and then they like meet at a bar um, and she like hits on her. And like there's never a discussion of like, do you also like women? It's just sort of like you're hot and I'm hot. So now <laughs> we should hook up, um, which I love that. 
I know that you had read you. There was something from an interview. Uh, oh that yeah, interested you. So this is based on a comic, mm-hmm. um, graphic novel. Graphic comic. novel, yeah. Um, and so in the adaptation, um, Charlie's Throne was very involved. Um, and in the original text, um, Delphine is a man, and I think that they still have an affair. I haven't read it. Um, but Charlene was very involved in the decision uh, to make Delphine a woman. Um, and when asked about it, she says, It's unexpected. It's refreshing. Everybody says you can't do that, which is such bullshit, Theron says. Why is it that James Bond can sleep with every girl in every movie and nobody says, Wow, he's not in love with them? Am I the only person who, long, long ago before I had children, had a one night stand with somebody from a club? Nobody else has done that before. Um, and I'm like, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I don't think it's one night stand. They hook up a couple times. They do, but they do meet in a, like, their first conversation is at a bar, and then their first kiss is at a nightclub. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They've been circling each other in a spy way for a while, mm-hmm. but their, like, intimate interactions definitely come yeah. more, like... Yeah, the spy circling to sex pipeline is great. <laughs> <laughs> much sure for it. Much better than enemies to lovers, I have to say. <laughs> um, yeah, and I liked. Um, I have mostly like I don't know ambivalent feelings about the decision to um, the kind of like light. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, like Charlie's was not like. I want to have queer representation and specifically bisexual representation. And therefore it has to look like this. She's was just sort of like, here's the genre. Here are the tropes um, that in like a typical woman centered action movie would not be available to me. I would have to fall in love with some dude. Um, But like, what if instead um, I can have a hot bond girl? And let me tell you, she got a hot bond girl. (laughs) I've never seen a James Bond movie, so I don't know. Um, I don't really have a lot to compare it to, but um, from the cultural knowledge that I have soaked up um, from the zeitgeist, I really feel like Delphine fits right into this. Yeah. I, so as, when I watched the movie the first time, I really tried to, um, I was like, how do I feel about this in a, like, because so often sapphic sex scenes are filmed in a way that is very, like, for the male gaze mm-hmm. um and so i was like do i feel like that's what's happening do i not feel like that's what's happening and i actually would say i feel pretty neutrally about it from that perspective like um it didn't feel it didn't feel incredibly like salacious mm-hmm. like, oh we're like watching two women have sex yeah um but it also didn't feel like uh i guess women centered <laughs> Which mm. maybe for this movie makes sense. Like that was their sort of the middle ground of yeah, like that was the approach. Um, I guess it probably would have been weird had it been like a very I don't know like intimate like um because this movie is so uh so not interested in interiority. I'm not sure that there would have been an authentic to the film way for them to like. Yeah. Do it differently if that makes right. sense. Yeah, that does. Make so sense. like I yeah, I think I feel neutrally about how it was produced, which in some ways then I feel positively about the fact that I feel neutrally because so rarely do I feel neutrally about something like that. 
Yeah. I think I feel the same. Um, when it came on the screen, I was like, this is hot. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't in like a suddenly we're really interested in her body and suddenly like uh, they're going to make a scissor sandwich or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like it didn't feel like this is what men think women do. Yeah. Um, it was just sort of like this is what hot people do when they <laughs> lay down in a bed together um, with incredible bisexual lighting behind them. Yeah. Um, yeah. It felt hot and like spontaneous. But yeah, not in a way of like, well, now they're going to move in together or now like (laughs) they're like performing for like the camera, which is a stand in for the male gaze. Yeah. Um, It felt intimate in the way that like casual sex is intimate in that like it's not, I don't know, it's just the people who are engaging in it who are involved. Um, And that was good. I think if I'm remembering correctly, most of the scenes most of the shots are like from a little bit further back right yes. there's no like um looking down like th- there's no point i don't think during like the actual hooking up um where you're like super close up on their bodies really closely together um or like seeing it from one person's perspective or something um there's like some intimate moments later where they're like laying in bed together where it's a little bit different um but when they're actually like you know hooking up um <laughs> the camera is at a respectful distance and it's just yeah. sort of like a thing that they are like autonomously doing uh because they want to do it yeah the the camera is like fairly neutral yeah about it yeah which i think play like plays into the that <laughs> neutrality that we experienced because it's not like look at these boobs it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know um there's no like pan down her body or something yeah. it's just like this is what people do in hotel rooms. <laughs> this, this is all they do. This is what a hotel rooms for. Yeah. Ah, I mean, um, if I had a hotel room that looked like that, like with all those pretty colors and stuff, <laughs> that's what I would be doing in a hotel room. <laughs> so we haven't talked about Percival yet. Mm, we've got to talk about Percival. We First, uh, tell the people about your feelings about James McAvoy. Oh, James McAvoy. So um, I have had a crush on James McAvoy since I was probably like 11. Wow. Maybe? That's a long-term relationship. Yeah, I know. There was, um, I saw him in children of Dune, which was one of the early things that he did. And yeah, I was just, I was struck. Um, <laughs> and have continued to love him (laughs) um and then you know he just is often in movies with people who are also hot like um for those of you i guess not familiar for those of you who are like who the f is james mcavoy um james mcavoy in the most recent x-men movies he plays professor x um opposite michael fassbender who plays magneto and um, Michael Fassbender is nice to look at, mm-hmm. I feel like. Um, and he often in movies plays sort of like, I don't know, like gruff characters <laughs> um, who just, you know, have had a lot of trauma. So that's why they're gruff and they have to, you know, hide mm-hmm. their feelings, mm-hmm. um, which I might like. Um, <laughs> Brave. <laughs> <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) And um, that is also a pleasurable experience to watch, Mm -hmm. you know, my longstanding um, love for James McAvoy play opposite other people who are also hot, like Charlize Theron. Um, And in this movie, um, he there's like one point where she's sort of she's she just like does not have time for Percival and his bullshit. She does not. She's <laughs> a woman on a mission. Yeah. Um she's like I'm here to get something done. You are fucking around. Um and like there's one point where they're walking and I forget what she says to him, but she's like very dismissive and he's like I think I love you. <laughs> um <laughs> And um, so James McAvoy playing opposite Charlize Theron, I was like, these are hot people being yeah. hot. I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. We love hot people being hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, it's Berlin. Uh, and so he's also like wearing, I don't know, mesh tops and like, mm-hmm um yeah peak like 80s <laughs> 90s punk um, yeah. yeah um well i think at one point he's wearing he wears like a fur coat like there's definitely just like a sartorial aesthetic mm-hmm. that i was like oh i like this mm. <laughs> you wear that mesh top james <laughs> <laughs> yeah um he rocks it but something that i hadn't thought about that you brought up that once you said it i was like Oh, you're right. Um, is that he's like serving some real bi vibes. Yeah. And let me explain. Um, so as as previously mentioned, the dude who dies in the beginning, who Charlie's had some kind of affair with, um, was really good friends with Percival. Um, which Percival denies in the beginning. He's like, Oh, I didn't know that guy. I'm sorry that happened. Um, but then Charlie's goes to his house. The, yeah, the the apartment that the guy who was killed lived in yeah and there's a picture wait was this picture in the dead guy's house yeah okay so in the dead guy's house there's like a picture of him and percival just like standing i don't remember what they're doing um, but it's just them it's just a picture of them that's like in a picture frame on a shelf and she's like i thought you didn't know him and i'm like were they also lovers because like two things one like even in a- 1989 the act of printing a photo and putting it in a frame that takes a lot you know what i mean um, and like to display it and then also like as spies I feel like um, the stakes are such that it's maybe not a good idea to like display photos of yourself with other spies <laughs> in your home um, and so I'm like this is like truly an act of intimacy and an act of some kind of love like this was clearly an important relationship to him if he was willing to like go to the trouble of printing a photograph um, and also like the potential risk of like displaying yeah. a photo of him and another spy um and maybe like they're just really good friends and we love men who are good friends and that's really sweet and precious but also just like given the other vibes of the movie (laughs) i'm like and also percival being like i didn't know him um i'm like were you guys also in love um because if so then everybody here is canonically bisexual yeah and we love that well and he does seem as the movie goes on and you sort of learn more about like what's going on with percival he does seem um, kind of angry mm-hmm. about the guy who was killed. Yeah, there's definitely, like, a resentment he's bringing into his relationship with Charlize that, like, 
the plot doesn't quite warrant, at least yes. not in the beginning. Which is interesting. And I, when you brought this up, I was like, I can't believe that I didn't think of that. Yeah, so in my head headcanon, um, <laughs> Percival is like jealous in some way of Charlie's um, mm. because of, you know, at one point they were both <laughs> having an affair with the same man. Um, and it seems like, if I remember correctly, somebody in her like initial meeting like mentioned her connection to that guy. They just asked if she knew him and she was basically like that they had worked together sort of tangentially, like not in any real fashion. So it was also, yeah. So like both of the relationships are like secret. Um, yeah. Because they're spies, but also, but also, um, yeah. So in my head canon, there's something going on there that, or they're like metamors and this movie is like much more woke than (laughs) we're giving it credit (laughs) for. Um, but most likely not. I mean, there is a certain like, sexual tension between James McAvoy and Charlize Theron that is like a it's like when sexual tension is like a a product of like other dynamics that like can't be quite named Mm. if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah like they don't seem to like necessarily be hot for each other um but there is there are other like power exchanges or like tensions or like things that they don't yes talk about and that that create attention where it's like if you guys would just kiss you could solve this <laughs> <Yeah>. all <laughs> like there's a point where he's in her hotel room and she like catches him in there and it's like he, she didn't invite him in like he definitely broke into her tel- her hotel room but also he wasn't he wasn't like at she like sort of uh she pins him to the bed <laughs> hot uh (laughs) and she's like how did you get in here whatever and he kind of you know dismisses it and he's like if i was actually following you if i was really following you you would never know Uh. and there's this sort (laughs) so this moment of like you know i wanted you to know Mm -hmm. that i was in this way that's sort of like um you know in real life would be creepy but because it's a movie is like oh I wanted you to find me here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, it didn't seem like he wasn't breaking into her hotel room to be like, now we can have sex in your hotel room. Yeah. He was like, I just wanted to show you that I can. And I wanted you to know that I can. Yeah. It's a power dynamics yeah. thing. Which um, inherently is sexual. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, um, it has a different kind of charge to it, I'm realizing. Because she, we have already been shown that she is like competent. Like we mm-hmm. already know, um, that she can hold her own, or that she can like defend herself in a way that, like, yeah, this is not a moment where she is being like he's trying to make a display of power, but she isn't like inherently at risk yeah it's it's different from like uh a girl in a horror movie here's a noise in the basement and she's alone in the house and we're like okay she's gonna die yeah here it's like we just saw her fight off like three men in a moving car in a foreign country and she's fine um yeah i know what you mean she is she isn't disempowered by him 
breaking into her hotel room necessarily. Yes. In the way that he maybe hoped that she would be. I don't think it's even, it doesn't, it's interesting though because I don't think he wants to like scare her. It's just like a, uh, I don't know, like a, uh, almost like he wants her to take him seriously is not the right word. Like that's how I've been describing everything. He's also competent. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Because I think also when they first meet, she is kind of dismissive of him and he like is sort of a fuck up. Um, And so maybe it's this sort of like trying to establish them as equals. Maybe is Mm. what it is. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And we see him uh, like waking up in a bed with a bunch of women in it. Yeah. I think at least once. But it's so it's like he like apparently has sex with women um but it's like not a thing at least not from my memory that he like i don't know talks about a whole lot so he's like i don't know he's much i'm also realizing like percival is much more emotional than lorraine is Mm, yeah like the things that he does are very like id motivated Mm -hmm. in that's true even like breaking into his breaking into her hotel room it's not like well I won't give any plot away. Um, but at that point in the movie, you're under the impression that it's really just about proving himself. Like he's actually yeah. not like trying to accomplish a mission. Um, he's just like, please take me seriously. Please believe in me. <laughs> um, which is like all feelings. And she's like, fuck you, whatever. Like I'm <laughs> trying to take, like go to sleep. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's all kind of like a, it's a game yeah. to him. Yeah. Which is not, um, not serious spy business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I said id, but did I mean ego? I don't remember what the difference is. <laughs> um, I'm famously not a psychologist. Great. Um, someone will know you. The, the people know what I meant. I think you. Yeah, the you part, know what I meant. <laughs> I think it's id. There's the id, the ego, and the super ego. But also, didn't Freud invent those? <laughs> He's complicated. Um, he's like lizard brain motivated. Is that what yes. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. He's not like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Psychologists, leave us a voice note. <laughs> um, so we need to start to wrap up, but I did want to, um, we also went to see another movie. We did. Called The 355. Mm-hmm. That was my first pandemic movie. Yeah. Movie theater experience. Um. Which had some other hot people in it. It had a lot of hot people in it. Um, But the hot people that particularly motivated me were Jessica Chastain, (laughs) who was also in a movie with James McAvoy. Um, (laughs) Seeing a through line here. Uh, And Sebastian Stan. Um, And they have a a whole thing. but also this is that was the movie that made me realize that Penelope Cruz is super hot so hot like I mean I knew that I knew that other people considered her to be hot but I had never had any particular like I was like sure she's a person that exists in the world in this movie I was like dear lord yeah that woman is gorgeous. so many like tight shots yeah her face just like her her skin is so smooth so in a way that smooth. I was like I didn't know that I could be attracted to someone's smooth skin but for Penelope Cruz yeah. oh. her eyes are so like I don't know. Yeah. Sweet. Um, and then Diane Kruger is just giving like real um 
for like wounded butch vibes mm-hmm. like that are just there personally like, works for me really yeah well, i have to say yeah a lot of like white t-shirt black hoodie like that's uh, the- <laughs> mm-hmm. that's the look um and unfortunately canonically i think everybody in that movie like we're expected to believe that they are all heterosexual it's just false but um yeah and then no Lupita Nyong'o is also uh, like. Did you know that my boyfriend gorgeous. went to the same high school as Lupita Nyong'o? <laughs> um, I did because uh, he brings it up anytime there's he an does. opportunity. <laughs> yeah, that's his claim to fame. Um, yeah, he's always like, "Oh, when Lupita and I were in school," I'm like, "Shut up!" Uh, so um, I'm only one degree away. <laughs> yeah. So that means you, as listeners, are. Two, two degrees, degrees away. away. Congratulations. <laughs> You're so yeah. close. So close. Uh, she's so hot. Uh, um, and such a good actress. Yes. But this movie, like, really, like, clearly, Jessica Chastain and Diane Kruger's, like, characters, like, should have ended up together. Yeah. Like, it's an actual crime that they did not. End up like, together. the minute they were on screen together. I was like, Chelsea, they're going to kiss. <laughs> <laughs> they just. The chemistry was. Yeah. They were on fire. Um, and they even like the last shot of the movie is the two of them together. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they're going to go home together. They're going to U-Haul. And yeah. then they just go their separate go, ways. Yeah. But what we know is like after the camera cut away they actually were like actually you know what they turned around yeah <laughs> yeah I w- i'm like still mad about that because like they if the movie was like we can't be explicitly clear um that's stupid but uh like if they if they really like felt that way they could have given us like at the end the two women go get a drink together and that's the end so it's like in my head canon they go home from the bar and they never leave yeah you know um, but they have to show us that they walk in different directions. <laughs> and I'm like, can I just have one happy ending? Come on. I mean, I think part of the thought was that they walk in different directions so that then we can have a sequel, which is when they reunite. Um, I don't think that this movie did well enough for an actual sequel to happen. But I mean, I would love I It was a great time. It was I really would fun. Watch a sequel, and I would be more likely to watch a sequel if they went home together. <laughs> And then we cut to the sequel, like everybody comes back together and they've been. They got to keep you on the hook. They got to keep you on the hook. Um, Yeah, but then, so obviously Jessica Chastain and Diane Cruz's character, like, were, like, there was something happening between them. And um, the thing that, uh, another thing in the movie that I had a lot of feelings about was the dynamic between Jessica Chastain and Sebastian Stan, Mm -hmm. which therefore makes. Jessica Chastain's character. Inherently bisexual. Yes. Yeah. Um, therefore, bisexual mm-hmm. movie. Therefore, um, more spy bias. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and I don't think we have time to get into it, but um, Natasha Romanov, the Black Widow, definitely bisexual. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You could say more about that. We have time. <laughs> Do we have time? The, I have like a lot of feelings about that character in that they like the problem with um having one female character that you put in a bunch of movies where she's otherwise just surrounded by men um is 
that what they do is sort of like give her romantic tension with like every man she's on screen with mm-hmm. um but then don't really develop any of those relationships um so she's just like out here i mean look i believe that she has chemistry with all of them that's fine um <laughs> but it's sort of like oh when she's in a movie with just this guy then it seems like something's going to happen between them but then when she's in this other movie with this other guy then clearly something's going to happen between them. And then you put him in a movie with all of them, and we don't acknowledge the tension that was happening in these other movies. (laughs) Um, And now she's interested in this other guy that she doesn't really have any tension with. Um, And they do this, so it gives this weird quality of her both being, like, sexualized and also desireless. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't exercise any, I don't know if autonomy is the right word, but it's like she is 100% available and yet has no preferences or something. Or like, um, I don't know. When I think about <laughs> this movie, I'm also thinking about movies like Wonder Woman, where like, where the backstory is like a woman <laughs> who was like, went through in this case something that was very traumatic in one woman i guess maybe not but like uh spent a lot of time in a place where there were only other women like the black widow training mm-hmm. place i forget what it's called um i'm expected to believe that that didn't impact like that she <laughs> never kissed a girl like i'm yeah. sorry if that's all you have you're gonna do what you have to do <laughs> like <laughs> the fact that we're supposed to believe that wonder woman's island that all of the amazons are heterosexual i'm like how (laughs) that's like not possible why are we so obsessed with this it doesn't make any sense um so silly (laughs) um yeah i wish that that was explored like at least a little bit more um but i've only seen black widow i haven't seen the other movies that she's in so i don't have as much context Black Widow is the one that is a spy movie. Mm-hmm. So for the purposes of this discussion, it's that's all I need to know. That's yeah, it's all that you need to know. Um, but I guess that just just to situate mm-hmm. sort of my feelings about that character, she's someone that they absolutely do the bus full of children moment to like mm-hmm. over and over again. Um, eh, which. I've already told you how I feel about the bus full of children <laughs> moment. Like, um, I was very emotionally compelled by her relationship with her sister. Um, I think before I realized that they like were sisters as adults, I was like, hmm. And then I was like, well, I guess this isn't going the way that I thought it was going to go, but that's okay. It's okay um, though, because um, not you can see sisters. her have sis- have sexual tension with Haley Steinfeld. Oh where um on um oh my god what the name is the name of the show um on it's another marvel property um hawkeye on the tv show hawkeye um but they it also seems like they're setting up um to do a young avengers show movie show i don't know in which case um she would be part of that team with Haley mm-hmm. Stan. Yeah, Haley Sa- Stanfield. Yeah, Steinfeld. I, I like can't say yeah. names right now. <laughs> Emily Dickinson. <laughs> Emily Dickinson. Um, 
the chemistry between the two of them is great. Oh. You see it in the Hawkeye TV show. And if they end up doing Young Avengers, then that'll be a thing where they will be part of a team together. Right. Hmm. I'm interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. All my thoughts just left my brain. <laughs> I, was, like, I distracted you times. by being like. <laughs> Watch her have sexual tension with uh. Emily Dickinson. But yeah, I think um, you're right about the bus full of children thing. Uh, in that, even just in that uh, one film. But I think. Um, I'm going to be thinking about what you said about how like de- she is desired um or like lusted after or like chemistry is like happening to her but she is not exercising preference or agency because uh that feels very true and I now I'm curious about uh what other characters that same sort of phenomenon is like mapped onto mm. that's interesting we and even- it leaves the door open <laughs> for us to headcanon our way into whatever we want you know yeah uh i mean we even talked about i think after you first watch the movie there is a guy who um i forget what the word is for like i don't not like a fence but like who like helps her get stuff it's like she needs a plane and he like he's her guy yeah um the plane guy yeah and it was like i think i said to you i was like they definitely slept together right and you were like Oh yeah, like yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and he's like still thinking about it, and sh- and she's just sort of like, yeah, well, give me a plane. <laughs> like I got other things to do, but you know, if we're ever in the same place and I'm like not busy, sure. Yeah, like. yeah. It seems like he's like still really holding on to like they had a brief tryst, and he's like, we're gonna rekindle that, and she's like, give me a plane. Yeah, yeah. He's like, a- <laughs> it's like the like flipped stereotypes where like sex made him emotionally attached <laughs> to her um yeah it's a very interesting relationship whenever there's like a uh, a woman character who is like i work alone i don't need anyone which yeah. i think also ties back to atomic blonde um i'm always then very interested in the attachments that do come up in her life because i think um it gives us a chance to like explore um what we think people in in this case particularly women like need from others Mm. um or what they seek um and i think like for example to go back so in uh black widow she needs a plane (laughs) um but she needs somebody to sort of like look out for her and like provide her with like safety and anonymity and stuff and like that's what this person does and then she has like as she's reconnecting with her like family quote unquote um some of those sort of like needs are explored i think especially with her younger sister as well um, but thinking about Atomic Blonde, like the only real like connection connection that we see is between uh, Charlize and Delphine. And she isn't like, great, I'm in love now. But there is like a um, opportunity for Charlize's character to be like a little bit soft. Mm-hmm. Um, and after some time, like a little bit more um, like with her guard down. Um and a little bit more open to connection. Um, and it's really beautiful. And I don't think it's too heavy handed of like, now she can be a woman. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's always, I don't like, that's a theme that I see in, um, in stories about women who are like, I do this alone. 
um, when they actually do have connections because you like have to have other characters most of the time to have a compelling story. Um, I'm interested in like what those connections are trying to to get at about what like what needs the character actually has. That's an interesting way to think about it because that the like I work alone, particularly for for women characters, is like necessarily steeped in the like I'm not like other girls. I'm a cool girl yeah. because women are positioned as communal, whereas like men and masculinity is like individual. Mm-hmm. And so the it's like very entrenched in an argument of like in a gender dynamic of yeah. like in order to be a successful spy, action hero, whatever. She has to be more like a more man. masculine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I'm not as interested when it's like a man character who is like, I work alone, but now I'm in love because I'm like, <laughs> oh, boring. Like, I've seen this before. Um, well, and even then, it's usually not. They're not positioned as equals. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that he falls in love with a woman who's going to kick his ass. It's that he falls in love with like a damsel who yeah. potentially someone's going to kidnap or murder and stick her in a fridge. Yeah. And then that becomes motivation <laughs> for his like story. Yeah. That's true. Uh, gender is so, uh, so convoluted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then it all like, um, It is inherently connected to experiences of sexuality and of desire and of power dynamics. And so like all of the, I feel like all the things that we have talked about today become, even though they're not about bisexuality explicitly necessarily, um, they all factor into like how desire and intimacy and agency is performed. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't know, so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And bisexual, because there's a, there's a unmapping and a redrawing of uh, what those, um, or like renegotiation of what those kind of power lines and dynamics look like mm. um, in any sort of queer situation, but I think particularly um, in my experience as a bisexual, um, you know, the templates are there, but I'm like chafing against them in so many cases. As are other bi, I was gonna say other bi characters, but I'm a person, not a character. <laughs> I mean, I'm also a character. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so if you haven't seen the movie um, and you want to see some hot bisexual lighting uh, and some excellent fight scenes, would recommend. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you, too, want to be frustrated by um, Hollywood cowardice, mm. uh, you can watch Cowards. the 355. and just like stick with me and my head canon of that they end up together in the end yeah i mean just write the scene for yourself they absolutely they definitely do yeah
Okay. Well, spy bye. <laughs> <laughs>